Hello people, welcome to the community of the Growth Mindset Podcast. Guys, if you are a first time listener, don't forget to subscribe on whichever platform you're listening from so that you don't miss on more interesting episodes coming up in following weeks. And for our daily listeners, here we are again with a new episode where we will interview another interesting personality from a unique industry and understand how they were able to accomplish this great level of success. Remember, this is a podcast where we learn easy, practical methods and tips that we can implement in our daily lives from the very best and the most successful people known today. Because as we all know, success leaves clues. And we, the people having the growth mindset, will use these clues to create a better, more fulfilling and a successful life. So, let the growth begin. First thing first, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the, the Growth Mindset Podcast. It is an honor to have you here. It's my pleasure, Sean. Perfect. So, Yannison, uh, before we dive into our conversation about uh, your journey, what you've been through, would you like to tell uh, my listeners uh, as to what your story is like? Where does all the story begin? Where were you born? And, you know, a little background about you and yourself. Well, where I was born may be going back a little too far, but yeah. <laughs> I generally start my uh, my thumbnail with uh, college. I, I graduated from the University of California with a degree in English. And uh, what does one do with a degree in English? Uh, you could do what I did. You go hitchhiking across the United States for half a year, uh, <laughs> across the Atlantic, went backpacking across Europe. And uh, after a year, I found myself in Israel. And that's where I connected with my Jewish roots, which I really knew nothing about at the time. I grew up with you know, no knowledge of, of what Judaism was. And so it was a whole new world for me. And I found this, this vibrant culture of deep thought and uh, community and purpose and, um, and intellectual and moral integrity. And that mm. changed the whole trajectory of my life. I ended up living in Israel for nine years, met my wife there. We had our first two children there. I became an Orthodox rabbi. And then I embarked on my career as a high school, high school teacher. I wanted to impart to teenagers the wisdom that I had discovered. And so I taught for one year in Budapest, Hungary, two years in Atlanta, Georgia, and 20 years in St. Louis, Missouri, where I am now. Wow. And in 2016, my school closed and I uh, had to reinvent myself. So I, I thought I would take all of that accumulated wisdom I'd been studying and teaching and try and distill it into a message that was relevant for a professional audience. So I became a a professional speaker, um, hmm. you know, teaching leaders how good ethics is good business and the benefits of intellectual diversity. And by shaping a culture with an ethical mindset, uh, leaders can inspire passion, they can prevent blunders, and they can make <laughs> their brand image shine. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's really, uh, the, more, the more I've been involved with it, the more passionate I've become. Because I see the benefit to people in business, to people in their personal lives, their professional lives, society as a whole. You know, we're going through another one of our contentious uh, presidential campaigns here in America. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, every four years, it seems the national mantra is, we thought it couldn't get worse, and it did. (laughs) And, And if we're all unhappy with the direction things are going... 
uh, we, we need to find a way of, of addressing that, that cultural inertia. Mm. And I think that ethical awareness is really the answer to that problem. Interesting. In, in your own personal speech and in your TED Talks, you talk about ethical leadership, right? So what exactly is ethical leadership? Well, it starts with addressing the misconception that we have to choose between being good and being successful. Hmm. And the way our brains are designed, uh, we have an amygdala, what they refer to as the reptile brain and a lizard brain, which I want it now. I want pleasure. I want gratification. And we all have that. Um, it's just part of, of who we are. But at the same time, we all have something called the frontal lobe, which is not only frontal in the sense that it's in the front of our in the brain, in the front of the skull, but it's also, it's forward looking. Hmm. And, you know, we all know, we understand we have to balance short-term payoff versus long-term planning. You know, anybody who's, anybody who's been to, to school, oddly enough, not everybody enjoys sitting in school every minute yeah. of the day. But we recognize, even at a young age, that this is something that has a payoff down the road. Um, people learn musical instruments. They, use, they learn trades. They study sports. Anything good requires practice. You know, Malcolm Gladwell's famous 10,000-hour rule. Yep. Um, the more you do something, you better, the better you get at it. If you want to achieve mastery, it takes a tremendous amount of work. And relationships take work. Everything requires investment of time and energy and effort and thought. And ethical leadership means recognizing. The truth is, it's really redundant. <laughs> okay. right? Leadership, by definition, should be ethical. And it's a sign of the mm. times that we have to put that adjective in front of it. But what is leadership? Leadership is empowering others with the means and the opportunity to fulfill their potential, to achieve what they can achieve, to make the contribution that they have the potential to make. You know, the best CEO, they say, is somebody who does nothing. Yeah. In the sense that he makes sure all the pieces are in place mm. and that everybody can do their work. And that's a full-time job if it's done well. True. True. Not micromanaging, not um, you know, sneaking up on people, not making people look over their shoulders to see who's watching, but rather giving them the mm. sense of power and responsibility and partnership and mission that motivates people to want to do their best work and allows them to develop in a way where they can. Hmm. So basically, how can people become ethical leaders? Now, you, you mentioned what exactly is leadership, right? But how can somebody become a leader that is empowering others? Any practical tips you have? Well, yeah. Um, in fact, I have an article that I think is due to come out in, in Fast Company magazine uh, this month. And, and what I use, I use ethics as an acronym for six personal characteristics that define an ethical leader. So the E is empathy. Hmm. I have to understand where other people are, what they're feeling. You know, feel people's pain, feel people's joy. Understand how my actions as a leader and the culture that I allow to, con to develop will affect those who are working for me and what their needs are and what's going to help them to be able to do their jobs better. The T is trustworthiness. Hmm. I have to be trustworthy as a leader, but I also have to trust my people. Yeah. Right? If, I don't, if they know I don't trust them, <laughs> true. <laughs> then you know, they're, they're, they're just, true. we're never going to get going. It's never going to get off the ground. Right? The, um, the H is humility. 
Right? Mm -hmm. And that means that sometimes I have to take a step back. I have to ask for guidance. You know, the, 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 the leader who thinks he knows everything, he's already in trouble. Yeah. Right? The, the leader who surrounds himself with yes men, <laughs> I guess they'll be politically correct. Correct. Yes, women either. Just as bad. Right? As, I don't need somebody to tell me I'm right. Hmm. I need people to point out the things I haven't thought of yet. Okay. And I have to be willing to listen and reconsider and reevaluate and make corrections accordingly. And if something's not working, take responsibility. Okay, this was a look like a good plan, or I don't have the I don't have the knowledge I need. I didn't see this. I don't understand this. Collaboration means that every member of the team feels that he or she can make a contribution that will be received, will be considered. Doesn't mean every every opinion is going to be followed. Yeah. But to allow that that willingness to offer suggestions, to listen to critiques, to criticism, to new points of view. Um, and that really leads into the I, which is inquisitiveness. Hmm. Um, you know, curiosity is an incredibly valuable trait to want to know what you don't know. Hmm. Socrates said, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> yes, that's deep. And, and it's, it, you know, it's deep. It's incredibly simple, too, that we always have to be learning and looking and thinking and listening and exploring because that's how we broaden our horizons. Yeah. The C is courage. Hmm. It's sometimes scary to trust other people, yeah. to try new things, to admit you're wrong. But wouldn't you rather find out you've been wrong than continue to be wrong? Yes. Right? And finally, the S is, um, is self-discipline. Hmm. We talked about learning a musical instrument, learning a sport, learning any trade. If I can't motivate myself to do the hard work that's necessary to be a leader, it's just not going to happen by itself. True. So that I, I love all the, you know, how you've synchronized it and, you know, made it into a, a synonym or you would say, you know, broken each and every single letter out there, ethics. And the one which appeals to me the most is the last one, the self-discipline. And I know a lot of people also, uh, you know, are, are facing trouble in terms of making themselves or pushing themselves to the next level, like trying to motivate themselves as to how I can go and become a better person, a better leader. So do you have any advice or any tips that can help people become self-disciplined so that they can push themselves or motivate themselves? <laughs> That's an interesting question. It's, it's, um, it's a bit of a um, chicken and egg thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> If, if I'm not motivated, how am I going to get motivated? Yeah. And, and the truth is, it's, it's, a lot more, it's a lot more complicated and difficult than, than it might sound. Hmm. Um, as a high school teacher, it was a question that I, I dealt with all the time. How do you get kids to care? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just watched The Social Dilemma, which is this new uh, Netflix documentary on... Um, Everybody, I mean, it should, we shouldn't just watch it. We should study it. Okay. Um, because it really breaks down how dangerous technology is to us right now. Interesting. The, 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 the social media, the algorithms, I mean, they are designed to turn us into addicts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what is an addict? An addict is somebody who has lost self-control. True. 
I mean, how many people go into rehab again and again and again and again, and they come out clean and they just slip right back? Exactly. You know, the, and, the, and, the, and the more that cycle perpetuates itself, the harder it is to break. And that's why it's so important to start early. Mm. And that's why, you know, I devoted 23 years of my life teaching high schools, because if you can yeah. get young people on track early in life, exactly. the payoff's going to be forever. Sure. Um, but what do you do with those kids that just aren't interested? Mm, that's exactly. not motivated. Yeah. You know, my approach was, was always intellectual because that's mm. the way I am. Um, but the truth is, I, I, you know, I realized over time that most people are not that way. Sure. Uh, most people are much more influenced by their emotions. And so that's why in my speaking, I use storytelling. Because if you can attach a message to a story, and the story's compelling, people remember the story. If they remember the story, they might remember the message. There's actually been a, there was a study a while back that found that people who learn, sorry, people who read literary fiction demonstrate more moral sensitivity than people who read nonfiction. So I can read a, I can, I can read a a, a bunch of data proving to me how the brain works, how character develops, how history has unfolded, the mistakes of great leaders, successes of great leaders. Um, but if you put it into a narrative, if you put it into a story, so what happens is that my mind absorbs on a much deeper level. And I don't have to work as hard to make that connection between the head and the heart, which in Judaism we say is the longest distance in the universe. Um, you can do something 100% and it just doesn't affect you at all. But if, you, if, we, if, we, if we look for stories, uh, and, and, and you know, it's, it's a problem so much with what we consume, whether it's the news, which, you know, that famous phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. They, they, they know that we tap into negative stories. And that's what they feed us. And you know, you can you can watch movies or, or TV shows or, or read books that have that have cynical messages to them, and you will absorb that cynicism. Whereas if you expose yourself to uplifting stories, you will find inspiration. And so it's the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we allow ourselves to be told, and to a large degree, it's the people we associate with. You know, choose where Jim Rohn said that you are the the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So that's real people, and that's our online associations. So be careful with the people you hang out with, the communities you belong to. If you hang around with disciplined people, you'll become more disciplined. It's inevitable. Very true. I mean, it's all about you surrounding yourself with the right people and then you know, being conscious of what we are being fed, like what you are actually taking, like the narrative, as you just said what exactly is the story behind and surrounding yourself with the right people would obviously give us at least the push so that we can understand that okay, these guys are doing good. Let me also do something which can also make me better person, right? And then we think differently. That's right. And, and of course, everything comes down to, to vision and mission and purpose. I have to want to be a better person. If, if, I, if, I have, if I'm not motivated to improve myself, one of, one of the great um, Hasidic rabbis, Rabbi, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, he said, if you don't want to be better tomorrow than you are today, why do you need tomorrow? Wow, that's deep. 
we have to want to we have to want to improve. We have to want to make ourselves better because we really don't have control over. You know, I can go out to save the whales and save the rainforests and and then uh, be a social justice warrior and all that stuff. That's fine. But ultimately, the only thing I really have control over is myself. Yeah, definitely. Now, we, I also know that, you know, initially uh, when we were talking, when you told that you went hitchhiking right after your college. Now, in that span of traveling alone and hitchhiking, what is that one thing or let's say two or top three things that you've learned by hitchhiking, which has made you a better person? Well, I talk about this in my TED talk that, you know, a, a hitchhiker, you don't really think of a hitchhiker as somebody who wants a free ride. <laughs> but, but really, a, a hitchhiker, as a hitchhiker, I wanted to pay my way, just not with money. Hmm. And by the way, you go back to the ethics, the essence servant in, in ethics can also be service. Right? How can I serve others? And, and that was the mindset I had when I got in a car as a passenger. How can I be of service? to my driver. So some drivers want someone to talk to them. Many drivers want someone to listen to them. Mm. And there's a stranger on a train syndrome that uh, you know, two people who know they're never going to see each other again will tell each other secrets that they haven't told their closest friends. Wow. And there were drivers who actually told me that. Now, you know, I've never told this to my wife, my, my, my family, my friends, what I'm telling you, because it was safe. Yeah. You're going to drop me off. They're going to go on. And, and I'm not going to be able to. I'm, there's no way I can reveal their secrets. And I realized that what they wanted was someone to listen. Because the truth is, they, were, they weren't really talking to me. They were talking to themselves. They just needed somebody to be there to make them feel comfortable. And because, you know, when we, when we talk to other people very often, we're not really having conversations. Yeah. My, 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 my <laughs> college psychology, psychology professor used to call it dialogues of the deaf. <laughs> two people who are talking at each other, but their conversations really, have, you know, they're two, just two monologues that are, that are. Hmm. And because I wasn't thinking about what I have to say, because I realized that that's not what I was there for. I listen more, more closely. I listen to hear rather than to reply. And so I learned more about these people. And in the process, I learned more about myself. And that really set me up for enormous changes I made in my life. When I encountered in Israel a whole worldview that I had never contemplated being relevant to me at all. And I listened. Mm. And, and I was willing to consider ideas that were very, very different. And, and really antagonistic to many of my own held beliefs hmm. um, that, uh, that really, you know, I, I, I can't even imagine where I would be today if I wouldn't have, have gone in with that mindset and that willingness to listen. And part of that is what I listened while I, I learned while I was, in, while I was hitchhiking. Hmm. Now, how can people become a better listener? What tips do you have? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it goes, it goes back to curiosity. Everybody, I don't know who said this, everybody knows something you don't know. Cool. Listen, I've been trapped in conversations with people that just aren't that interesting. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's hard. But see it, see it as a mental workout. See it as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, an emotional, psychological workout. Hmm. 
You know, when you go to the gym, you don't really want to pick, pick up pieces of metal again and exactly. again and again and again and again. I mean, there's no purpose in doing mm. that except for the change it brings to you. Mm. And then when you listen to someone and you pay attention and you try and home in on something that is of interest, mm. you know, Dale Carnegie, who wrote uh, How to Win Fl Friends and Influence People, yeah, right? he said that. He says in the book that he acquired a reputation as an extraordinary conversationalist by listening. Exactly. And you know, if you can, if you can, if you hear something that really is a value of interest in what somebody says, and you draw that out, and instead of they're going on with this narrative about things that may not be terribly important or interesting, you can actually get them to be more engaged in their own story. Yeah. Because they've homed in on something that, that maybe they, they weren't aware was really so significant. Exactly. And as, as you rightly pointed out in the book, right, the, the book of Dale Carnegie about how to win friends and influence people, he also suggests same thing, like asking people questions and being genuinely interested in them, right? Asking questions about their stories, where were you from? If you actually had, you know, let's say you went out to travel, how was your travel? Which were the places you visited? Being genuinely interested in them and not just you know passively listening i think that is actually the key uh, you know as you rightly pointed out that is actually the key to being a great communal you know a great conversationalist and in the same book he also talks about right like while well, why dale was talking to somebody when they had met in a conference or some place he did not talk actually the lady did 90% of the talking and he was just asking questions and the lady said you know dale is amazing you know, the way he has conversation, whereas he did nothing. He just asked questions because he's genuinely interested in the person. Right. And, and have the, the attitude that I can learn something from every person. Yes. And, you know, we, we have these, these active listening devices, you know, you should nod, which both of us are doing right now. And, uh -huh. um, you know, when you lean forward and you know, sort of mirroring what the other person does and, and those, you know, it's good to know about those things. But if you're genu genuinely oh. interested, you'll do those without thinking about them. Exactly. So could be to start off, we have to learn the techniques to force ourselves to become active listeners. Interesting, yes. If we're genu genuinely interested, we, will, we, we won't have to think about those things anymore. We'll just do them because it'll be the natural response. True, true. It's, it's, it's just like how you said initially, right? Practice. The more and more you practice, it just gets into you. You know, there's this famous thing that um, I forget what her name is. Uh, she she has like the second most watched TED Talk of all time. Okay. Uh, fake it till you make it. Now, it's interesting because apparently much of her science has been debunked. She claims this is a physiological reaction that when you act confident, you actually, your body produces a certain confidence. And, and I think that's questionable. But from a, from a certain psychological point of view, we can fool ourselves. Hmm. You know, you, in, in Jewish tradition, it's taught that, that the heart follows the actions. Hmm. So I may not feel like I'm really interested in you, but I can act like I'm interested hmm. in you. And if I act like I'm interested in you, there's a chance I will become interested in you. And that applies to everything. Exactly. You know, if I act kind, if I act generous, if I act... Uh, thoughtful, if I act civil, which is certainly something we could <laughs> see more of these days, you know, when, 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 when you adopt a behavior consciously, 
it may be, and, and this is not being insincere, this is not being hypocritical. Correct. Hypocritical is when you say one thing and you believe something else. Exactly, yeah. Right? But if I say, well, I'm not there yet, I'm not where I want to be, but if I artificially act that way, that will help me get there. Mm. Nothing insincere or hypocritical about that. Mm-hmm. It's being genuine. I have a vision of myself where I want to be, and I'm going to use whatever means I can to get myself. And if it's a, an authentic and a valuable mission and purpose and vision, then uh, that's noble. And it's ennobling. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in your TED Talk, uh, Jonas, and you also talk about beliefs, right? Like beliefs coming in from different environment places. Will you tell us more about beliefs? What do you understand beliefs? What have been your learnings about beliefs? Why are, how are our beliefs formed in the first, first place? And how should we, you know, question ourselves if those beliefs are right or not? This is something I think we could all benefit from. Um, and, you know, it is, it is relevant to my own story because I did have to re-examine all my beliefs when I, um, when I was confronted with another way of looking at the world. Yeah. But, and, and this is what I say in the, in the TED Talk, is ask yourself, where did you get your beliefs? Where did your values come from? Did you choose them or did they choose you? Because we grow up, we absorb our parents' values, we absorb our teachers' values, we absorb our peers' values, we expose ourselves to opinions in the news and to values on, on, in the entertainment industry. And, and that has uh, an effect that by osmosis, we take on those values. I mean, think about how society as a whole has changed in its values in just the last 20 years. And you can argue it's good or it's bad, but th- without getting into that, it's real. I mean, ways of life that were considered really outside the norm less than a generation ago are now mainstream. Yeah. And that happens through exposure. And the problem with that is that we often never make the rational decisions or go through the, pro- the thought process of examining what exactly are those beliefs? Are they worthy of belief? Should I be believing like that? Or should I reconsider? And you know, that's, that's scary because I can end up in a place where I've been invested in a particular belief, maybe for years, and I discover that I really can't defend it from a logical point of view, or I really don't understand the side that is questioning it. Well, if I don't understand why, why you believe what you believe, how can I possibly think you're wrong? Yeah. And if I can't understand why you're disagreeing with, disagreeing with me, how can I know that I'm right? But because we are afraid and we're unwilling to question our beliefs, what we end up doing is we retreat into our little enclaves our ideological clips, this is where you get clicks, that's where you get groupthink, that's why you have partisanship, and that's why you have the whole system of civil society breaking down around us. Because I become so irrationally invested in my, in my beliefs, whether they're political or social, ideological, um, it becomes, it becomes my, my religious dogma. 
And once something's religious dogma, then anybody who disagrees with you is a heretic and heretics have to die. <laughs> yeah. So there's no way forward. Interesting. How, I'm, I'm curious about how did you, uh, you know, turn into a religious person? I believe from your own story, as you said, you weren't, read, uh, you weren't that religious initially in the beginning, right? But then Not at you, all. Yeah. And then you move from being, let's say, an atheist to being an agnostic and then being an agnostic to a religious person as you are today. So what brought this tran uh, transition? Can you tell us more about the transition? How you broke those beliefs, questioned themselves, and how did that change your perception? I tell, I tell the story in my TED Talk of uh, this fellow I knew in high school named Bob Gordon. And he wasn't a particularly close friend, but we just happened to be chatting one morning. And for some reason, I felt that I needed to declare that I was an atheist. And, and he looked at me and he said, that's stupid. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, it doesn't make any more sense not to believe in God than it makes to believe in God. You can't prove one, you can't prove the other. Why do you want to believe in something you can't prove? Yeah, that's, that's a logical thing. Well, yeah, and, and you know, it, but logic doesn't always get through to us if we're emotionally invested. For whatever reason, at that moment, I was receptive hmm. to what he said. And I, and I said, well, that's, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have good arguments for or against God. So why am I taking a stand on something that I really can't defend either way? Right. So, you know, we use the term agnostic somewhat incorrectly to mean someone who doesn't really know. Um, but I, 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 you know, just suspended my judgment. Hmm. And when I ended up in a religious seminary in Israel, um, it never would have occurred to me that there could be a logical, rational basis for belief in God, much less belief in a, you know, system of, of uh, religious discipline hmm. that would dictate a person's whole life. Um, but again, because I was willing to, to listen, I discovered that it really had very little to do with what we call faith. You know, faith is not, and Judaism is much different. I know Christianity has this concept of a leap of faith, and that's fine if it works for you. I, I had a very good friend in college, one of my best friends. We were roommates together. He was a very, very serious Christian, wonderful fellow. And he was always telling me about his beliefs, and he took me to church, and he took me to study groups, and I could never get past that first step. How do you make a leap of faith? He did. Good, good. I'm happy. He's a good person. People need yeah. more people like him. And I have no interest in convincing him he's wrong. I just couldn't get there. And so when I got to to Israel, and I found that we look at faith in a completely different way. It's not a leap in the beginning. It's a short step at the end. And that when you look at science, and you look at biology, and you look at nature, and you look at history, and you look at the wisdom in the texts, and you look at the supernatural design of a tradition that sociologists marvel at the, 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 the knowledge of human nature, you know, there was a study done a number of years ago. It wasn't that long ago. I think it was like three, four, five years ago um, that they tried to, to rate the, the happiness of different groups. Okay. The number one group they came out, who's the happiest group of people in the world? Orthodox Jews. Wow. 
you know, and that's talking about people who are, many of whom are living close to the poverty line, mm-hmm. because we have we have big families. You know, I have four children. That's considered a fairly small family. Um, I have neighbors with you know eight, nine, ten children, wow. <laughs> and you know, and a lot of the families, you know, they're they're teachers, they're they're you know secretaries, they're they're not. And, and even the ones who are in successful jobs, you know, I mean, financially successful jobs, mm-hmm. you know, the lawyers and the doctors and businessmen, they're paying a fortune to private school tuition. Correct. You know, there, there's a lot of, of reason to think that people would really be struggling with their lives. And of course, Karl Marx would say, well, it's, it's the opiate of the people. But that's not fair. It's, it's true that many people will use religion as an excuse not to deal with life. Hmm. But that's that's certainly not what Judaism is all about. It's about engaging the world in a way that allows us to make a positive difference and preserve our moral dignity. And when I sat in a class with a rabbi who looked like he just walked out of the ghettos of Eastern Europe <laughs> and was, in fact, a professor of philosophy at Johns Hopkins University. Oh, wow. And, you know, he was so articulate and he knew my questions before I asked them. Wow. And anything, anything I challenged, he had a response. He had an answer. And I was there with a couple other guys and we would, we would huddle after every lecture and we'd, we'd, we'd play different parts and we'd try to, to punch holes in his arguments. Well, all three of us ended up <laughs> religious. Um, we just couldn't do it. We couldn't find the holes in the arguments. And, you know, I, I really, I really went kicking and screaming. <laughs> so what was some argument that you had on top of your mind, which actually convinced you to become uh, an Orthodox Jew, uh, uh, a teacher? What, and any specific thing that, that you realized, okay, this is it? No, no, there, there's no one thing. And, and if there is, that, that would be cause for concern. <laughs> mm, interesting. Um, but if you look at science, you know, Big Bang. Yeah. Science can't explain Big Bang. They can describe it, but they can't explain it. And if you ask a physicist what happened before Big Bang, an honest physicist will say, we have no clue. Exactly, yeah. A less honest physicist will tell you something like, well, the laws of physics only begin to apply after Big Bang. To ask what happened before that is not scientifically relevant, which is a lot of syllables for we have no clue. And then you get into the phenomenon of today. I mean, the universe is not only accelerating, mm. it's not only expanding, but it's accelerating in its rate of expansion. Yeah. Which they, they put a name on it. They call it dark energy. Mm. Well, putting a name on it implies we know what it is. <laughs> well, it violates the laws of physics. And there's no explanation for it. Exactly. And then there's what they call dark matter, which is the mm. same thing. There isn't enough mass in the universe to explain the observable mass in the universe. Hmm. Put a name on it. Now we don't have to worry about it. I mean, this is on the NASA website. You don't have to take my word for it. Don't take my word for anything. I mean, go look it up. Evolution. Personally, I have no problem with evolution, but spontaneous generation is is theoretically impossible. Oh, but it happened? The fossil record is missing all kinds of gaps, uh, evidence, evidence of macroevolution, tra- transformation of one species into another. Right, we know species can adapt. 
Yes. But for one species to turn into another, there's very little support for that. So you need more faith to believe in that there's no God than to to, to believe that there is a God. (laughs) I can deal with evolution, but something was helping it along. Yeah. Because by itself, it's not even a theory. You can't test it. You can't prove it. Right. And there are all kinds of holes in it. And if you go back to when these theories were first put forward, I mean, the the first suggestion of Big Bang and evolution, I mean, they looked at people like they were crazy. Hmm. The problem is, if you don't say Big Bang and you don't say evolution, then what are you going to say? Yeah. God? Oh, that's not scientific. (laughs) So this this is not proof of God. This is just a demonstration that the burden of proof does not lie on the religious any more than it relies on the a-religious. Then you start getting into just the the extraordinary wisdom of of ancient teachings. I mean, the ancients understood us far better than we understand ourselves. 100%, yes. And and the the discipline they had and and the extraordinary standards they set for themselves Mm-hmm. And, and the moral clarity that they teach. And then, of course, there's the, the history of the Jewish people itself and, and the prophecies in the Bible that you will be an oppressed nation and you will be uprooted from your home and you will always be small in numbers and, and you will always be the focus of the world's attention. I mean, you walk into the, the United Nations, I've heard different statistics, but apparently you have a better than 50% chance they're going to be talking about Israel. This is one of the smallest countries in the, in the world. Yeah. With almost no natural resources. It should be, I mean, how often do you hear people talking about Guatemala? Never. I've had it. It's a pretty country. <laughs> Costa Rica. It's supposed to be beautiful down there. I think it's about the same size as Israel, maybe. Um, why are people talking about those countries? Why Israel? Because so many people want to wipe it off the map. <laughs> Why do they want to wipe it off of them? Nobody was interested in it before the Jews settled that back there. Yeah. It was swampland on the coast. It was desert on the inland. Nobody cared about it. Yeah. So, and where do you have in history a group of people that survived for 2,000 years without a homeland? Ooh. You don't find people who survived 2,000 years with a homeland. Correct. Babylonians ruled the world, and before them the Assyrians, and after them the Greeks, and the, and, the, and the Persians, and the Romans. Where are they? Yeah. They're all gone. What are we doing here? Exactly. These are some really, you know, intriguing and really tough questions that I think all of us needs to ask ourselves and, you know, actually understand, because end of the day, we are having faith either in science, because as you rightly said, we are putting faith in something, which is, for example, science not exp- the probability of things that science knows versus what it does not know, it's, it's great, right? Like, they don't know a lot of things about. And then you actually have some faith on those theories rather than having faith on, you know, maybe a religious background or, or on God, whatever you want to call it. Right? So end of the day, it's all about me choosing, right? And actually, you know, reading, trying to learn more about the history, seeing, you know, what where we are, why we are here, why, what got us here, trying to identify and then choosing that beliefs and seeing if that really works for you, if that really digests. I think 
that should be what everybody should be looking out for rather than just adopting ideas or you know just being fed with information right and, and your faith is fine if it's built on a solid foundation mm-hmm. if you have a friend and you've been friends for for 20 years and you've been there for each other and you know that if you have a problem you can pick up your phone and that friend's going to be there for you yeah well do you know it or do you have faith in that friend or is it that that friend is a faithful friend? Mm. So he's earned your trust. He's earned your faith. Right? There are always going to be things we don't know. Yes. And that's existential to being a human being. There are always things we don't know. I mean, if you really want to get philosophical about it, do we even know where we exist? <laughs> We're figments in somebody else's imagination. True can't prove that we're not, but we're probably not. <laughs> so in the meantime, <laughs> you know, when, you, when you cross the street, do you know you're not going to get hit by a car? Exactly. No, but you, 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 try to, you try to play the odds. Right? That's yeah. why we look both ways before you cross the street. True. That's why you wait for the signal to change. Yeah. Um, you, you make decisions that are consistent with logic. And then you have an element of faith that making logical choices is going to pay off in the end. Mm. And you and you temper your logic with intuition, but you know to to demand a hundred percent knowledge, it's not realistic. Yeah. yeah, we all have to make educated guesses. We all have to make reasoned choices. We have to deal with uncertainty in our lives. And instead of taking, let's take it out of the big theological, philosophical conversation to putting it down into, into practical life, relationships. Hmm. I mean, why, why, do, why are marriages in crisis today, right? Because people don't go into a marriage wanting to earn one another's trust. Hmm. They go into marriage wanting gratification. Hmm. Feels good now, yeah. having fun. Right? Yeah, my wife and I have been married 32 years, and wow. um, it's um, you know marriage is hard work. Exactly. You know, we raise four kids together. It's hard work, and and we're still working at it because human beings are are, are creatures of contradiction. We talked about before with the short term and long term. Yes. Right? But we're 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 individuals who want to have relationships. Yeah. Ooh. We're spiritual beings living in a physical world. We have short-term needs and long-term goals. Okay. I mean, we are creatures in conflict all the time. And instead of trying to avoid that conflict or resolve that conflict, what okay. we want to do is we learn to manage that conflict. So let's embrace it. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's what ethics does for us. It allows us to be aware of how our actions affect those around us. Mm-hmm. And this is what leadership is really all about. Yeah. It's about getting people to come together in a way that benefits everyone. Mm. And it means everybody has to give up a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. the more you invest, the more your returns. Perfect. I know, Yanison, we're coming to the end of the interview, but there is one last question that I want to ask you. And this is a question that I ask almost all the guests on my podcast, right? Uh, now, let's imagine, you know, so far you're raising your four kids and, uh, you know, let's say 20, 30 years from now, 
you do, you've done great work. You, you, you've written more multiple books. You've helped people. You've helped a lot of teenagers. Uh, but now it's the time for you to depart from this planet. Now you're on your deathbed, right? And you can give, let's say, two practical advice to your kids to live a happy and a fulfilling life, a happy, successful, or a fulfilling life. What those two advice would you give your kids? I think I think it's something that we we've already talked about. To be honest with yourself, mm. you know, self deception is is perhaps the root of all evil. That that when we convince ourselves that what we want to believe is true, then we've really closed the door on um, on truth mm. because we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to consider points of view that challenge yeah. what we've already decided we want to believe. So be honest with yourself. And I guess it goes back to that second S in, in ethics is, is service. Um, a life of service is not a life of sacrifice. It's a life of connection. When you are part of something more than yourself, that really is what produces happiness. When I'm committed to something beyond myself. Yeah. You know, we talk about personal growth mm -hmm. and we think about becoming more than we are. When I connect with someone else, now I've expanded my identity to include another person Connect. or a group of people or an ideal. Yeah. I literally become more by relinquishing some of my independence and my yeah. autonomy and investing it in others. Yeah. So find, find an ideal worth serving and serve it authentically. And that's, um, that I think is, is the key to success and happiness. Wow, I love the part about the service because yeah, I believe you know, when you have a purpose bigger than yourself, is when you actually, you know, you you you're not just concerned about yourself, but you're actually providing value to value to somebody else. And then I believe, you know, you also are remembered even after your death, right? Like your legacy lives on. You are doing something right, and you know that this is the right thing to do. And you actually go ahead and do that. And then if you teach the same thing to your kids, they will continue the legacy as well. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the uh, the sages teach that a person should have many students. So how many is many? Mm -hmm. It means teach students who will become teachers because then you're not teaching a generation, you're teaching generations. Exactly. And it's not talking necessarily about somebody who's in a classroom hmm. or in a lecture hall. We are all teaching the people around us hmm. because we observe, we watch other people, other people see us. Yeah. And we can inspire people to be more than they are, or we can give people license to do whatever they feel like. So we are going to affect people. Exactly. Perfect. Uh, so guys, this brings us to the end of this interview. And again, uh, as Jonathan rightly pointed out, and my own personal suggestion, find a purpose, be honest. And, you know, as he said, the two most important things, being honest and service. So let's implement it in our lives and make sure that we help people around, uh, around us and also improve ourselves on a daily basis. So thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us on the show. My pleasure, and uh, as I always like to invite uh, listeners to to connect with me. Yes. Uh, they can find me online at uh, my my website's my name, Jonasson Goldson, Y O N A S O N G O L D S O N dot com, 
and um, always eager to, to keep the conversation going. This brings us to the end of this episode and hope you at least had one takeaway from this interview. If you have any questions or want to talk to me personally, you can find me at www.silavatirshad.com. See you soon.